welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 9th, 2023, Thursday's reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Nicola Fordwood. Today, we will be reading the following main articles from the Daily Camera. Expanded Task Force. Oversight Panel Welcomes Six New Members. Written by Annie Mel. Heat Pumps EVs. New Tax Credits Part of Latest Push Toward Clean Energy. Written by Nick Coltrane. International Women's Day. Events Highlight Gaps in Gender Equality. Written by Syrian Giles and Mary Yamaguchi. Goose Creek Bike Path. Man Arrested for Pointing Replica Gun. Written by Mitchell Byers. And following up with miscellaneous articles. The following main articles from the Longmont Times call. On the Verge. New Visit Longmont Chief Touts Tourism. Written by Lucas High. Ukraine. Russian Forces Claim Progress in Bakhmut. Written by Hannah Arihara. Universal Health Care. Should Colorado Launch Its Own System? Written by Seth Clayman. Loveland. City Manager Sued Over Alleged Shove. Written by Jocelyn Rowley. And following up with miscellaneous articles. From the Daily Camera. Expanded Task Force. Oversight Panel Welcomes Six New Members. Written by Annie Mel. The Boulder Police Oversight Panel welcomed six new members Wednesday night during its first official meeting following a bumpy several months after the City Council twice continued its vote to approve new members due to community pushback. The new panelists include Lisa Sweeney Mirren, Jason Savella, Soledad Diaz, Madeline Strong Woodley, Sam Zhang, and Mylene Vialard. With the additions, the panel expands from 9 to 11 members. On Wednesday, the panel spent the first half of the meeting choosing its new co-chairs and assigning its members to its three committees, Community Engagement, Governance, and Legacy. Daniel Leonard was reappointed as co-chair, and continuing member Hadassah Villalobos was also selected as co-chair. Sweeney Mirnor volunteered to serve as co-chair until Villalobos said she would be happy to take on the role. None of the other new members or continuing panelists volunteered due to the workload that being a co-chair entails. While panelists are given a $200 stipend every month from the city, co-chairs receive $250 and are required to lead the meetings and represent the panel to the community or media. Zhang asked how the stipend amount was determined and whether it was possible for co-chairs to receive more than just an extra $50. Is the stipend amount set by us, or is that a city ordinance? Because hearing the 10 to 15 extra hours a month for $50 a month, that, the math doesn't really work out, he said. Leonard said the Boulder City Council last year raised the stipend amount up from $100. 
That's something we can take back to council if we would like at some point, because this is important work. And I want to highlight that we're taking time out of our lives to do this, he said. We are community volunteers, but it's important for the accessibility of this panel that we are helping people financially. The panel agreed to add two new trainings, one on the police union and another on how officers are trained on values and ethics, to the list of what they will learn about in the coming months. During the last portion of the meeting, Florence Finkel, the interim independent police monitor, discussed three cases that the panel chose to review and made recommendations on. The first case involved an allegation against one Boulder police officer who was suspected of asking another officer if she was single while they were training her. The officer was also accused of speaking to her about the state of their marriage, talking about the other officer's appearance, and discussing the sex acts they wanted to have with her. The panel recommended that the department terminate this officer, which was sustained by the police department. But the officer resigned ahead of his administrative hearing before the Boulder police chief, Finkel said. Both the panel and the police department exonerated the two officers involved in the second case the panel reviewed, and neither the panel nor the department sustained an allegation against one officer involved in the third case. The panel ultimately selected four Boulder Police Department cases that were split among members to review. For one case, both Leonard and Sweeney Mirren recused themselves from voting on whether they wanted to see it reviewed, but did not say why they could not vote. The case involves three officers. All the officers are accused of violating Rule 1, compliance with values, rules, and general orders, because they reportedly attended a Boulder City Council meeting while on duty. The panel was required to discuss which members would review this case during executive session following the meeting, Finkel said. One of the other cases the panel chose to review involves seven officers. All the officers involved are accused of violating Rule 5, Police Authority and Public Trust, and Rule 6, Use of Force. Both the panel moved into executive session. Martha Wilson, who resigned from the panel late last year, spoke during the public comment to offer her support to any new members. She also commented on the case involving the officer who resigned ahead of termination. With regard to the pervert patrolman, it is a shame that officer was allowed to resign, but I personally think such deplorable actions warrant reporting to the National Police Accountability Project so that other police departments know what they are potentially welcoming into their communities, she said. Heat pumps, EVs. New Tax Credits, Part of Latest Push Toward Clean Energy Written by Nick Coltrane Governor Jared Polis and Colorado lawmakers are pushing a baker's dozen of bills they say will help move the state toward a clean energy economy. The package of bills highlighted Wednesday, some of which have been introduced, includes tax incentives to promote decarbonization and electrification, geothermal energy, electric vehicle charging station requirements, and streamlining permitting approval for solar energy projects. There's a lot of cost-saving measures, as well as improvements in life quality for everyday Coloradans that are really built into the fabric of these bills, Polis said. They also include industrial policy updates, he added. Polis described the package as both setting the vision for Colorado's energy future and giving the state's tools to reach it. 
A proposal sponsored by the State Senator Chris Hansen, SB 23-016, would set the state's emission standards to net zero by 2050. The state has additional goals of 100% renewable energy by 2040. Hansen's bill has been previously introduced. He said Wednesday he sees a clear path for it to become law. Perhaps the most consumer-focused proposal is a slew of point-of-sale tax credits for electric vehicles, electric bicycles, and electric lawn equipment and snowblowers. Currently, Coloradans are eligible for up to $9,500 in tax credits when they buy a new electric vehicle when federal programs are included, according to the state. This proposal would up the t- would up the state's incentive from $2,000 to $5,000, which notably will be applied at the point of sale. The proposal will additionally ramp up for people shopping for lowered-priced electric vehicles. Representative Mike Wiseman, an Aurora Democrat who will sponsor the yet-to-be-introduced bill, said they wanted to open up the program to people with lower and moderate incomes. We have a moral obligation to aggressively lead in this and to set an example of what states can do so that other states will follow and eventually so that other nations will follow what we're doing, Wiseman said. Will Tor, executive director of the Colorado Energy Office, said the state tax credits for electric vehicles and other programs would meet local needs while also building off federal programs to maximize federal tax credits that come to the state. The package also includes a bill aimed at promoting electric vehicle charging stations, particularly in multifamily home developments. Polis vetoed a bill last year with a similar aim over concerns that it would have put certain technical requirements in law. He said this one provides more flexibility. Lawmakers also took aim at promoting decarbonization by incentivizing new technology. State Representative Ruby Dixon, a Democrat from Centennial, said she's seen no credible climate models for stopping rising global temperatures that don't include carbon management. We have an opportunity to really take the lead on this, and not only to achieve our climate goals, but also because it could be an amazing economic opportunity, Dixon, who is sponsoring some of the decarbonization bills, said. Polis, as chair of the Western Governors Association, has promoted geothermal energy through the Heat Beneath Our Feet initiative. The package of bills would include tax incentives for using the source of energy in the state. The package comes as the Joint Budget Committee, which drafts the state budget, readies its spending proposal. Outside of the tax credits, most of the proposal's policy changes that would cost the state relatively little, Polis said though many have not gone through a nonpartisan physical anal- analysis yet. The, st- the tax credits are also temporary. The sponsors and polis said the spending should fit within the state budget. We've structured these in a way that is affordable inside the state budget construct that doesn't have an immediate impact on the general fund, Hansen, a former member of the JBC, said. International Women's Day. Events highlight Gaps in Gender Equality Written by Syrian Giles and Mary Yamaguchi The Associated Press, Madrid From demands for constitutional rights in Islamabad 
to calls for economic parity in Manila, Paris, and Madrid. International Women's Day demonstrations in cities around the world Wednesday highlighted the unfinished work of providing equity for half of the planet's population. While activists in some places celebrated political and legal advances, observances also pointed to repression in countries such as Afghanistan and Iran, and the large numbers of women and girls who experienced sexual assaults and domestic violence globally. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres noted this week that women's rights were abused, threatened, and violated around the world, and gender equality won't be achieved for 300 years given the current pace of change. Progress won over decades is vanishing because the patriarchy is fighting back, Guterres said. Even in countries where women have considerable freedom, there have been recent setbacks. This was the first International Women's Day since the U.S. Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to abortion last year, and many states adopted restrictions on abortion. The United Nations recognized International Women's Day in 1977, but the occasion has its roots in labor movements of the early 20th century. The day is commemorated in different ways and to varying degrees in different countries. The United Nations identified Afghanistan as the most repressive country in the world for women and girls since the Taliban takeover in 2021. The UN mission said Afghanistan's new rulers were imposing rules that leave most women and girls effectively trapped in their homes. They have banned girls' education beyond sixth grade and barred women from public spaces such as parks and gyms. Women must cover themselves from head to toe and are also barred from working at national and international non-governmental organizations. Afghan women's rights campaigner Zubeda Akbar told the UN Security Council that women and girls in the country are facing the worst crisis for women's rights in the world. The Taliban have sought not only to erase women from public life, but to extinguish our basic humanity, said Zubada. There is one term that appropriately describes the situation of Afghan women today, gender apartheid. Women gathered in Pakistan's major cities to march amid tight security. Organizers said the demonstrations were aimed at seeking rights guaranteed by the Constitution. Some conservative groups last year threatened to stop similar marches by force. Women's rights activists in Japan held a small rally to renew their demand for the government to also mar allow married couples to keep using different surnames. Under the 1898 Civil Code, a couple must adopt the surname of the husband or wife at the time of marriage. Surveys show majority support for both men and women keeping their own names. In the Philippines, hundreds of protesters from various women's groups rallied in Manila for higher wages and decent jobs. We are seeing the widest gender pay gap, protest leaders John Salvador said. We are seeing an unprecedented increase in the number of women workers who are in informal work without any protection. The first female leader of Tanzania, President Samia Saluhu Hassan, said during an International Women's Day rally organized by an opposition party that she has brought a new level of political tolerance to the East African nation. 
Hassan has been accused of continuing her predecessor John McGolfi's anti-democratic policies, but she lifted a six-year-old ban on opposition rallies in January. The opposition is lucky that it is a woman president in charge, because if a misunderstanding occurs, I will stand for peace and make the men settle their egos. The president said. In Turkey, women converged on a central Istanbul neighborhood to try and demonstrate for their rights and protest the staggering toll of the deadly quake that hit Turkey and Syria a month ago. Thousands braved an official ban on the march and were met by police who fired tear gas and detained several people. Similar incidents marred past year's efforts to hold the march. Groups held banners saying, "We are angry. We are in mourning," a reference to the more than forty-six thousand one hundred people in Turkey who died in unsafe buildings, and the hundreds of thousands left homeless in the February six quake. Goose Creek Bike Path: Man Arrested for Pointing Replica Gun, written by Mitchell Byers. Boulder police arrested a man after he reportedly pointed a replica handgun at people near the Goose Creek bike path Wednesday morning. Boulder police spokeswoman Dion Wah said dispatchers received a call at 8:15 a.m. Wednesday about a man pointing a handgun on the west side of the pond in the 2800 block of Mapleton Avenue. Police responded and took the man into custody without incident by 8:26 a.m. Wall said the man was found with what appeared to be a replica handgun. Police have not identified the man or said what charges he might be facing. Wednesday's incident marks the latest in a string of gun scares in Boulder over the past month or so, including an armed man on 28th Street, a shooting at the Millennium Harvest House, and two false reports of a gunman at Boulder High. New District: Applicants sought for Public Library Board of Trustees. Written by Amy Bounds, applications are being accepted for the Boulder Public Library District's Board of Trustees, with the creation of the seven-member board marking the first big step in getting the new district going. The trustees will be setting policy and direction moving forward, and are tasked with hiring key staff, developing budgets, and managing the district in a way that's responsive to the needs of the residents, among other duties. Boulder County Commissioner's Chief of Staff Clay Fong said in an email, "The application deadline is 5 p.m. March 29th. For more information and to apply, visit boco.org/library-district. The district includes Boulder and portions of unincorporated Boulder County. Voters in November." Approved two ballot measures to form the property tax-funded library district, and repeal the city's municipal control of the library system. Some of the changes outlined in the ballot measure include restoring and improving literacy programs, adding more public meeting space, updating and improving books and materials, extending library hours, adding a new branch in Gun Barrel, and expanding programs. Library district trustees must reside in the library district legal service area. The initial board will represent the library district in negotiating an intergovernmental agreement addressing the transfer of the Boulder Public Library's assets and liabilities. Other duties include employing the library director, adopting an annual budget, 
and making appropriations and borrowing funds and entering into contracts for library purposes. The Selection Committee is seeking applicants with a strong background in the services provided by the Boulder Public Library, as well as those with an understanding of financial matters and experience with property acquisition and, dispos and disposition. The Selection Committee is comprised of two Boulder County Commissioners, Claire Levy and Marta Lokuman, and two Boulder City Council members, Mayor Aaron Brockett and Nicole Spear. Trustee positions are unpaid, but trustees will be reimbursed for travel and expenses directly related to their service. Trustees are likely to meet twice per month, generally during the day or early evening, starting in early May, for one to three hours per meeting. And in the nation? Disney World. Ron DeSantis's new board hints at future controversy. Written by Mike Schneider, The Associated Press. Lake Buena Vista, Florida. The first meeting of the new board of Walt Disney World's government, overhauled by sweeping legislation signed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis as punishment for Disney publicly challenging Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay bill, dealt with the rote affairs any other municipal government would handle. Calls for better firefighter equipment, lessons on public records requests, and bond ratings. But the five board members appointed by DeSantis hinted Wednesday at future controversial actions they may take, including prohibiting COVID-19 restrictions at Disney World and recommending the elimination of two cities that were created after the Florida legislation in 1967 approved the theme park resort's self-governance. The board also approved hiring the same law firm that advised the governor's office in making changes to the governing district to help interpret the new legislation. For the most part, the new board members listened in a hotel ballroom outside Disney World as members of the public and workers from the district departments explained what they do. Martin Garcia, the board's new chair, said the major distinction between the old board controlled by Disney and the new one appointed by DeSantis will be a broader constituency encompassing more than just a single company, instead also representing workers and residents of surrounding communities. You didn't elect us, but the people of Florida elected a governor who appointed us, Garcia said. I see there will be much broader representation. The other new board members, for which have been rechristened the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, included Bridget Zeigler, conservative school board member and wife of the Florida Republican Party chairman, Christian Zeigler. Brian Onks Jr., an attorney and son of a four, former two-term Republican mayor of Clearwater. Mike Sasso, an attorney. And Ron Perry, head of the Gathering USA ministry. They replaced a board that had been controlled by Disney during the previous 55 years that the government operated as the Reedy Creek Improvement District. The new name will require a new logo to replace the old one that's on 123 vehicles, 300 trash cans, and 1,000 manhole covers, District Administrator John Klass told board members. The takeover of the Disney District by DeSantis and the Florida Legislature began last year when the entertainment giant, facing intense pressure, publicly opposed Don't Say Gay, which bars instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through third grade, as well as lessons deemed not age-appropriate.
DeSantis moved quickly to penalize the company, directing lawmakers in the GOP-dominated legislature to dissolve Disney's self-governing district during a special legislative session, beginning a closely-watched restructuring process. Violence. After Taylor shooting, feds find police discrimination. Written by Dylan Lovin, the Associated Press. Louisville, Kentucky. The U.S. Justice Department found Louisville police have engaged in a pattern of violating constitutional rights and discrimination against the black community, following an investigation prompted by the fatal police shooting of Breonna Taylor. Attorney General Merrick Garland made the announcement Wednesday. A Justice Department report found the Louisville-Jefferson County Metro Government and Louisville Metro Police Department engage in a pattern or practice of conduct that deprives people of their rights under the Constitution and federal law. The report said the Louisville Police Department discriminates against black people in its enforcement activities, uses excessive force, and conducts searches based on invalid warrants. It also said the department violates the rights of people engaged in protected speech, like the street protests in the city in the summer of 2020, after Taylor's death. Garland said some officers have assaulted people with disabilities and called black people disparaging names. This conduct is unacceptable. It's heartbreaking, Garland said. It erodes the community trust necessary for effective policing, and it is an affront to the vast majority of officers who put their lives on the line every day to serve Louisville with honor. The sweeping probe announced in April 2021 is known as a pattern or practice investigation, examining whether there is a pattern of unconstitutional or unlawful policing inside the department. The city will sign a negotiated agreement with the Justice Department, and a federal officer will monitor the progress. Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg said the city has wounds that are not yet healed. We have come to terms with where we've been, so we can get to where we want to be, Greenberg said. Taylor, a 26-year-old black woman, was roused from her bed by police who came through the door using a battering ram after midnight on March 13, 2020. Three officers fired shots after Taylor's boyfriend, fearing an intruder, shot an officer in the leg. Taylor was struck several times and died at the scene. The warrant used to enter her home is now part of a separate federal criminal investigation and one former Louisville officer has already pleaded guilty to helping falsify information on the warrant. No drugs were found in Taylor's home. Two more officers are charged in the warrant probe, and a third, Brett Hankison, is charged with endangering Taylor and her neighbors with his shots into her apartment. One of the attorneys for Taylor's family, Ben Crump, said the family was encouraged by the Justice Department's results. These findings and LMPD's expected cooperation with the DOJ's recommended remedial measures will help protect the citizens of Louisville and shape its culture of policing, Crump said in a news release. The report said black motorists were more likely to be searched during traffic stops, and officers used neck restraints, police dogs, and tasers against people who posed no imminent threat. Garland cited one incident where two officers threw drinks at pedestrians and recorded the encounters. Those incidents happened in 2018 and 2019. 
Both officers are facing federal charges. NAACP President and CEO Derek Johnson applauded the Justice Department findings, but said federal lawmakers have yet to step up and enact wider police reforms. While Congress continues to fail our country with police reform, at least the Department of Justice is taking their job seriously. Today marks a meaningful step toward police accountability, and should Congress now decide to step up, police reform, Johnson's statement said. He added that the group lauded Garland and the Department of Justice for continuing a pursuit of justice, and added Congress should take a page from their book, do their jobs, and pass the legislation necessary to save innocent lives. Louisville police have undergone five leadership changes since the Taylor shooting. And new mayor Craig Greenberg is interviewing candidates for the next chief. The city has settled a number of lawsuits related to the incident, including a $12 million payment to Taylor's family that ended a wrongful death lawsuit. Garland also mentioned some reforms the city has undergone since Taylor's death, including a city law banning the use of no-knock warrants in 2020. The warrants are typically used in surprise drug raids. The city also started a pilot program that aims to send behavioral health professionals to some 911 calls, expanded community violence prevention efforts, and sought to support health and wellness for officers. The report said. Also Wednesday, the Justice Department announced it will review the Memphis Police Department policies on the use of force, de-escalation strategies, and specialized units in the response to the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols during an arrest. The 29-year-old motorist died January 10th, three days after his violent arrest. There are no obituaries today in the Daily Camera. And from the Longmont Times call, on the verge, new visit Longmont Chief touts tourism, written by Lucas High. Sarah Leonard, the new executive director of Visit Longmont, joined the city's tourism advocacy arm. Is a move that appears somewhat serendipitous in hindsight. The recent transplant from Alaska discovered Longmont recently when, while moving her freshman son into his campus digs at the University of Colorado Boulder, she struggled to find lodging in Boulder. She looked a few miles north and booked a hotel in Longmont. I explored Longmont on my own, and I fell in love. Leonard, whose background is mostly in the nonprofit and statewide tourism spheres, told Biz West, "When this opportunity came up." I thought this could be our new next adventure. Leonard, most recently the CEO of the Alaska Travel Industry Association, is along with her husband, who is retiring from a local school district in Alaska, taking the next couple of months to transition into her new job and her new hometown. I'm super excited to be here and make an impact on more of a local community level," she said. Leonard, a member of the U.S. Travel Association's board of directors, takes over leadership of Visit Longmont more than a year after the departure of former executive director Nancy Rezek. The Visit Longmont board used the time without a director to work with the Colorado Tourism Office on its reimagined destination program, in a visioning and action planning process designed to advance tourism. Longmont Downtown Development Authority Executive Director. Kimberly McKee said in a January statement when Leonard's hiring was announced, "The time without a director, combined with the COVID-19 era slowdown in the tourism industry, 
allowed for Visit Longmont's board to reflect on its mission and solidify the successful elements of the organizations, she said. I think it gave them the board and staff the time to really focus on the processes and frameworks that could remain solid, Leonard said. So that's what I'm walking into, a really solid organization with a super supportive board looking to take to the next level. Despite its proximity to a plethora of outdoor recreation options and the presence of a host of highly regarded breweries, restaurants, and entertainment venues, Longmont isn't widely regarded as a tourist hotspot. Leonard said she thinks that's about to change. I think this is a welcoming community that's on the verge of really developing and becoming more attractive with a lot of experiences, food, microbrews, distilleries, and other things for people to do and spend money that supports local businesses, she said. Not enough people look at Longmont as a visitor's destination, but there are so many great opportunities for those who do visit the city. That's part of what was so appealing as a travel marketer. Longmont's lack of large convention and hotel space is an ongoing challenge for tourism professionals in the city who have struggled in recent years to attract business travelers since the Plaza Convention Center closed in 2018 and the adjoining Best Western Plus Plaza Hotel was purchased by a developer intent on transforming the lodge into apartments in 2021. That challenge could soon be mitigated by the Thrash Group, a developer behind Colorado hotel projects such as the Origin Red Rocks in Golden and the Origin Westminster that is planning a $24.5 million 84-room hotel on the site of city-owned parking at the lot northwest corner of Kimbark Street and 3rd Ave. We're starting to talk about for smaller group meetings and association events, Leonard said. There's an opportunity to create a package, maybe not with a big space in the short term, but really unique spaces for 50 or 100 people that still generates, generates important economic activity for businesses. Ukraine. Russian forces claim progress in Bakhmut. Written by Hannah Arhirova, The Associated Press. Kiev, Ukraine. The owner of Russia's Wagner Group military contractor claimed Wednesday that his troops have extended their gains in the Ukrainian stronghold of Bakhmut, but it remained unclear how long the grinding fighting might go on. Meanwhile, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited Kiev for talks with President Vladimir Zelensky on extending an agreement that allows Ukraine to ship grain from its Black Sea ports and permits Russia to export food and fertilizers. The battle for the city the Ukrainians have dubbed Fortress Bakhmut has become emblematic of the way each side has tried to wear down the other. Russian forces must go through Bakhmut to push deeper into parts of the Donetsk province that they do not yet control. Though Western officials say that capture of the city is unlikely to change the course of the war. The battle for Bakhmut has lasted six months and reduced the city with a pre-war population of more than 70,000 to a smoldering wasteland. It's not clear which side has paid a higher price. Wagner owner Yevgeny Pirogozin, whose troops have spearheaded the fight in Bakhmut, said they have taken full control of all districts east of the Bakhmutka River that crosses the city. The city center lies west of the river. Neither Russian nor Ukrainian officials commented on Pirogozin's claim. The Institute for the Study of War, 
a Washington-based think tank that closely monitors the fighting, said Russian forces were likely in control in the areas cited by Pirozhin following Ukrainian withdrawal. Russian troops have enveloped the city from three sides, leaving only a narrow corridor leading west. The only highway west has been targeted by Russian artillery fire, forcing Ukrainian defenders to rely increasingly on country roads, which are hard to use before the muddy ground dries. Zelensky vowed Monday not to retreat from Bakhmut after chairing a meeting with his top generals. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shagu said Tuesday that seizing the city would allow Russia to press its offensive farther into the Donetsk region, one of the four Ukrainian regions that Moscow illegally annexed in September. In a blustery video statement recorded near a World War II monument in Bakhmut, Pirgozin echoed that rationale, saying the prospective Russian push would make the entire world shudder. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg acknowledged that the Russians could seize the city soon. What we see is that Russia is throwing in more troops, more forces, and what Russia lacks in quality, they try to make up in quantity, he told reporters on the sidelines of a EU defense minister's meeting in Stockholm. They have suffered big losses, but at the same time, we cannot rule out that Bakhmut may eventually fall in the coming days. But like other Western officials, he played down the significance of Bakhmut's potential capture, arguing that this does not necessarily reflect any turning point of the war, and it just highlights that we should not underestimate Russia. The Ukrainian military has already strengthened defensive lines west of Bakhmut to block the Russian advance, including in the nearby town of Chazivyar that sits on a hill. Farther west are the heavily fortified Ukrainian strongholds of Kramatorsk and Solivyansk. The ISW observed that Russia was also likely short of the mechanized forces it would need to push on from Bakhmut. On Wednesday, Russian forces shelled scores of towns and villages in the Donetsk region and other areas in Ukraine's east and south, Ukraine's presidential office said. In Kiev, UN Chief Guterres was discussing the possibility of extending the agreement that has kept at least some of the country's exports flowing. Ukraine and Russia are leading global suppliers of wheat, sunflower oil, and other agricultural products. And Moscow's February 24, 2022 invasion of Ukraine drove food prices higher across the world. The current 100-day agreement expires on March 18th, said Guterres said extending it for a second time is of critical importance. Exports of Ukrainian as well as Russian food and fertilizers are essential to global food security and food prices, Guterres said. In other developments Wednesday, the top intelligence, intelligence official in, U, in the U.S. said American intelligence does not believe Russia can make major territorial gains in Ukraine this year because of heavy casualties and the Kremlin's inability to replenish weapons and ammunition. Speaking to a Senate committee, Avril Haines also cited other constraints on the Russian military, including dysfunction in leadership and declining troop morale. Germany's defense minister voiced caution over media reports that a pro-Ukraine group was involved in blowing up the Nord Stream gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea last year as some media have reported. Boris P 
Pistorius said more information is needed to understand who was behind the explosion and whether they acted with the Ukrainian government's knowledge. Pistorius also said nearly two dozen advanced battle tanks provided by European countries will arrive in Ukraine in the coming weeks. He said that included 18 German Leopard, Leopard 2 tanks and three from Portugal. The Leopards are part of a larger package of heavy tanks Western countries recently promised to Ukraine. A top European Union court has annulled the bloc's sanctions against the mother of Wagner Group owner, Pirogozin, because the measures are based solely on the fact that the two are related. Violetta Pirogozine was put on the UN, EU sanctions list because she was considered to be the owner of Concord Management and Consulting, LLC, part of the group founded and owned until 2019 by her son. But the Luxembourg-based General Court said she stopped being the owner of the company in 2017, even though she did retain some shares in it. Authorities in the Russian-held city of Inorhodar, which is the main residential area for workers at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, said Ukrainian drones dropped incendiary devices along a river embankment, setting off fires that spread and endangered power lines. The mayor of Irnohardar, Dmitro Orlov, said the smoke that arose in the city was caused by the burning of reeds along the embankment, but he did not say what caused the fire. Universal Healthcare Should Colorado Launch Its Own System? Written by Seth Clayman. Supporters of universal health care got a shot in the arm last month when Democrats introduced a bill that would direct public health officials to study how, how such a system would work in Colorado. Two House Democrats introduced HB 23-1209 in mid-February in the latest step in policymakers' ongoing journey to expand health care access in Colorado. The bill would direct the state's School of Public Health to analyze model legislation to implement a publicly funded but privately delivered health system here, meaning state-funded care provided by existing hospitals and providers. The study would examine the costs of a system under which copays and deductibles are prohibited while access and benefits are prioritized. Fort Collins Democrat Representative Andy Bosenecker, who, with Representative Karen McCormick, it's sponsoring the measure, said he's supportive of a single-payer system. He and other Democratic lawmakers said they wanted to see the results of a study here to inform policymaking into the future. The study bill, which would also establish a task force to assist in the analysis, would allocate more than $277,000 in state money to the University of Colorado to fund the effort. It wouldn't require any legislation be considered or even introduced by future lawmakers, but it would provide more data, legislatures said, several years after voters rejected launching a taxpayer-funded universal system here. If it comes back with high benefit, it's something we can take action on, said Democratic Representative Daphna Michelson-Jeanette, who chairs the House's Public and Behavioral Health and Human Services Committee. If it's a really bad idea we can go back to the drawing board. Supporters, like the Colorado Foundation for Universal Healthcare, say the study can show how or if a single-payer system can improve access to care while cutting costs. But opponents, like the insurer trade group America's Health Insurance Plans, say the study is a waste of time, particularly three years after a similar study was undertaken, also by the public health school.
that 2021 financial report found that a universal system could yield significant health care savings, particularly if pricing re- regulations are put in place to control cost growth in the future. Bosnecker said the study he wants would build upon the finding and provide more insight into how a system could work here. But he also noted that, in 2016, Colorado voters resoundingly rejected a ballot measure that would have instituted a universal health system. That program, Colorado Care, was projected to cost roughly $36 billion a year, and it would have, and it would have largely been funded via a 10% payroll tax. Bosnecker wouldn't say if he viewed the bill as a launchpad for future legislation on single-payer policies. I think what the bill is talking about would be a monumental shift in how we deliver health care in our state, he said. So obviously, being thoughtful and not rushing is important. The bill comes as the state continues to roll out the Colorado option and has, and as legislatures here, considered a slew of other health proposals. Governor Jared Polis has repeatedly hammered upon his desire to save Coloradans money on health care, and he supported universal health care during his 2018 campaign. Asked about the study bill during a press conference for other health bills last week, Polis didn't direct, directly say whether he supported the bill, but that he is generally supportive of looking at new and different ideas. Colorado is far from the only state to consider whether to launch its own single-payer system, A 2020 study published in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review found that legislatures in 21 states have filed 66 single-payer bills between 2010, when the Affordable Care Act passed, and 2019. A bill to enact a universal system in California died in late January 2022 amid pressure from business groups and concerns about how to fund the program, according to NPR. Vermont abandoned its trailblazing attempt in 2014 for similar reasons. Loveland. City manager sued over alleged shove. Stacy Lynn is seeking $350,000 in damages. Written by Jocelyn Rowley. An otherwise routine Loveland City Council meeting was briefly disrupted Tuesday when Larimore County resident Bill Mawini announced a lawsuit against city manager Steve Adams during public comment. Steve Adams, you have been served, Mawini said after handing the paperwork to city clerk Delin Coldiron. He then exited the chambers. The suit was filed on Tuesday in the 8th Judicial District Court by Mawini's daughter, Stacy Lynn, over an incident that occurred on March 29, 2022, at the Larimer County Justice Center. Lynn, an independent journalist, alleges that Adams shoulder-checked her as she recorded city officials exiting a courtroom following a hearing on an open records request filed by Mayor Jackie Marsh. In June, Adams was charged with one count of misdemeanor harassment stemming from the incident. In state statutes, harassment is defined as striking, shoving, kicking, or otherwise touching another person with intent to harass, annoy, or alarm. Adams remained on the job as the criminal case progressed, despite calls for his suspension or termination. He later agreed to enter the court's adult diversion program rather than go to trial. In exchange for completing community service and a conflict management course, the charge against Adams was dismissed and case records were then sealed. After the conclusion of the criminal case, Lynn released video footage of the encounter from three sources, including her own recording taken as it happened. It does not show physical contact between Lynn and Adams, 
but he does appear to look and walk directly toward her and pass by at close proximity. Lynn remained on her feet during the incident and later denied that it caused pain to Larimer County deputy who took her initial report. The incident and subsequent legal case was a frequent topic of comment at Loveland City Council meetings, where detractors and supporters of the city manager sounded off for several consecutive weeks through the fall. Among the former were Marsh, who called for a special council meeting to investigate the matter, but was ultimately rebuffed by other council members. At his annual performance review in December, Adams received a 6% raise from council, boosting his annual pay to $230,624. In the suit, Lynn is seeking monetary relief of $350,000 for two claims, harassment and intentional infliction of severe emotional distress. She alleges that the incident with Adams led to the untimely full stop of her journalism work due to, in part, traumatic emotional and psychological impact. Lynn claims that she felt unsafe in the aftermath of the shove, which ultimately led to her hair falling out, along with trouble eating, sleeping, and doing other daily activities. She further alleges that the encounter had a chilling effect on her investigation into what she calls the City of Loveland's ongoing corruption. Adams has 21 days to file a response to the complaint. In an email, Loveland Engagement Coordinator and Public Information Officer Nicole Yost acknowledged the suit, but did not offer comment on Lynn's allegations. The city is aware of the complaint and recognizes the importance of allowing the justice system to work through its processes and make decisions accordingly, she wrote. As an organization, the city of Loveland remains focused on providing the high level of service and dedication the Loveland community expects every day. Yost also indicated that Adams will not face any employment-related disciplinary action unless directed by city council. There is no attorney of record for Lynn named in the complaint. In September, Denver attorney Wade Eldridge laid out the groundwork for the suit when he served a notice of claim on Lynn's behalf to Adams, the Loveland City Attorney's Office, Mayor Jackie Marsh, and the Colorado Attorney General's Office. Neither Eldridge nor Lynn responded to the Reporter Herald's request for comment on the matter. And around the nation, voting machine lawsuit, Carlson's scorn for Trump revealed in court documents, written by David Botter and Nicholas Riccardi, the Associated Press, New York. A defamation lawsuit is revealing scornful behind-the-scenes opinions by Fox News figures about Donald Trump, including a Tucker Carlson text message declaring, I hate him passionately. Carlson's private text comments were revealed in court papers at virtually the same time the former president was hailing the Fox News host on social media. Trump said he was doing a great job in presenting excerpts of U.S. Capitol security video of the January 6, 2021 insurrection, though Carlson used the video to produce a false narrative of the attack. The documents are coming to light at a time of increased tension between Trump and Fox, the dominant media force appealing to conservatives as he campaigns to regain the presidency. Voting machine manufacturer Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News for $1.6 billion, claiming the network Broadwork broadcast false claims that the company was responsible for fraud in the 2020 presidential election. The case is to go to trial this spring,
and a trove of documents related to Fox's actions after the election are being publicly released in advance. A common theme emerging from the internal documents and depositions is that Fox executives and hosts doubted the election claims being peddled by Trump and his allies, but aired and emphasized them anyway. Fox was growing concerned about a decline in viewership as Trump supporters turned away from the network after it correctly called Joe Biden the presidential winner in Arizona on election night. The exchanges include Carlson's text conversation on January 4, 2021, with an unknown person in which the primetime host expressed anger towards Trump. Carlson said that, We are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights, and that I truly can't wait. Carlson said he had no doubt there was fraud in the 2020 election, but that Trump and his lawyers had so discredited their case and media figures like himself that it's infuriating, absolutely enrages me. Federal and state officials, courts, exhaustive reviews in battleground states, and Trump's attorney general found no widespread fraud that could have changed the outcome of the 2020 election, although Trump continues to falsely state that the presidency was stolen from him. Addressing Trump's four years as president, Carlson said, We're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it, because admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest. But come on, there really isn't an upside to Trump. In another text exchange more than a month earlier, Carlson denigrated Trump's business abilities. Trump's talent, he said, is to destroy things. He could easily destroy us if we play it wrong. Publicly, Fox viewers heard very different views, such as a 2017 exchange with colleague Greg Gutfeld, in which Carlson agreed that Trump was the greatest president that ever will be. On his show in 2019, Carlson said Trump had fought as hard as he could to make sure everyone in America was treated equally under the law. You can say what you really believe in public, Carlson said then. You're an American citizen. That is your right. Trump could lose in 2020, he added. But he'll be generally, but he'll be a generally great president. Fox, in response to the court exhibits quoting Carlson that were released late Tuesday, said that Dominion has been caught red-handed using more distortions and misinformation in their PR campaign to smear Fox News and trample on free speech and freedom of the press. We already know they will say and do anything to try to win this case. But to twist and even misattribute quotes to the highest levels of our company is truly beyond the pale. Carlson has continued rolling out security video from the Capitol attack, footage handed to him by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. For that, Trump said on his social media platform, Congratulations to Tucker Carlson on one of the biggest scopes as a reporter in U.S. history. The selective release of the footage to sway the historical account has drawn criticism, including from Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Wednesday called on Fox to stop spreading election lies, which he said was eroding trust in American democracy. Fox's founder, Rupert Murdoch, has a complex relationship with Trump. I was not close to him, Murdoch said in a deposition in the libel lawsuit. There are no obituaries today in the Longmont Times call. Thank you for joining us for the reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times call. My name is Nicola Fordwood. AINC programming is made possible by the William O'Rourke Foundation, providing financial support to organizations devoted to promoting vision services. If you enjoyed this program, 
please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.